Oh, my name is Matt. It's uh, great to be with you this morning. Uh, Merry Christmas season and happy snowy Sunday. I think this is our first. Uh, my wife and I love the snow, by the way, and we're really excited that it's finally here. Um, but uh, we are continuing this morning in our series in the book of Matthew. Um, so I realize no one wants to sit, sit near the front. What's going on? Um, a few of you. Um, we're continuing in our series in the book of Matthew, so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please uh, turn with me or open it up to Matthew 19, verse 13, and we'll get started. Uh, if you have been with us since day one of the church plant, a, a whole year and a couple weeks ago, uh, you know that, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> excuse me. Let me start over. You know uh, that we started on kind of day one with chapter one, verse one in the book of Matthew, and we've been working our way through that book with a few kind of major detours along the way for other series. Um, but over the next eight months, we plan to work our way through the second half of the book of Matthew, kind of verse by verse, more or less in order. But as we uh, mapped out that series, there was a few verses that kind of fell through the cracks or didn't have a great um, spot. And so we're actually going to cover those today because I'm a little bit like OCD and I want to cover every single verse in the book of Matthew, um, these included. And so, and, and it's going to be good. I think these verses have something to speak to us this morning. So if you were here with us last week, you'll remember that Matt Karsh taught on the calling of Matthew and the tax collector, and the fact that Jesus is inviting all sorts of unworthy people to come to his table and receive from him. And so today's teaching is, is kind of going to build on last week as Jesus continues to emphasize the value of the outsider. So we pick up in um, Matthew 19, verse 13, says this. It says, Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for him, for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. There will be weeks... <clears throat> in the coming months, where we will cover 15 to 20 verses at a time. This morning, we have two. But if it was important enough to put into the gospel accounts, we believe it's important enough for us to study. It's worthy of our time and attention this morning. So we'll unpack it together, but before we do, I'll ask you to join me in another quick prayer. Jesus, um, we come in this morning from all sorts of uh, distracted places, uh, in all sorts of different um, <clears throat> levels of relationship with you. But I pray this morning as we come together and, and open up the scriptures that we would have a really clear picture of who you are and the type of relationship you're inviting us into and, and the type of community that ought to be formed by a bunch of people being invited into these relationships at the same time. So would you um, speak to our hearts this morning, Jesus? We commit to being open to what it is you want to do and say. And we trust that you'll actually use that as an opportunity to come and speak to us and shape us and change us. As we're a new and emerging community, would, would you use our newness as a chance to, to make us malleable, for us to absorb what it is that, that you want to tell us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> 
As Jesus continues his uh, explosive ministry, he's likely just finished a long day of teaching and and the crowds begin pressing in like paparazzi. And the disciples are are trying to guard him and and get him home. And and we're told that the the people brought little children to Jesus and and he placed his hands on them to pray for them. That's the reason that they brought them. So, so here's what we have to get, though. In our culture, um, children are kind of uh, loved and exalted and included within kind of family and social life. But rarely are our children nowadays kind of formally blessed through the laying on of hands. It's just not really part of our culture. In, in ancient Hebrew culture, it was more closely the opposite. That, that children uh, had almost no status in their culture, uh, but there was a strong biblical precedent for the blessing of children through the laying on of hands. And, and if you're familiar with the story of the scriptures, you actually all see this all throughout the Old Testament, starting with Noah and the blessing that he gives over his sons, and then on through kind of the Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph line, the, the moment of fatherly blessing is in many ways the, the key moment of their lives. It's like this defining thing uh, that happens, Uh, which is why Jacob, for those of you who know the story, Jacob stealing his brother's birthright uh, was such a big deal. He literally stole the blessing of the messianic line by tricking his father to laying hands on him and and kind of blessing him and giving him that future. And and so the importance of kind of the blessing of children through the laying on of hands uh, was important and well known in the second temple culture of Jesus' day. It it mattered to them. In fact, uh, even today in traditional Jewish cultures, it's not uncommon for the father of the household uh, to lay hands on his children, sons and daughters, and pronounce blessing over them. And so in a lot of Jewish cultures, that will actually happen at the beginning or the end of the Sabbath day, which is a weekly occurrence. They would lay hands on their children and, and, and bless them, uh, as well as during key events, whether it's a dedication or a wedding day or a graduation or, or uh, whatever it would be. And especially on the father's deathbed, there was this unique moment of, yeah, it's, it's time for you to bless your, your children and kind of hand the future off to them. Uh, and in fact, one of the uh, priestly blessings from the scriptures that was often used for this purpose uh, is this one. It's really well known from Numbers 6. It says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And, and so the parents that are bringing these children to Jesus have all of this precedent for what it looks like to lay hands on, on their children and bless them. And, and they get that Jesus is the real deal. I, I mean, if anyone can truly bless these children and, and give them hope and a future in the power of the Spirit, it, it's this guy. And, and so they bring, him, they, they bring their children to Jesus. And in fact, in this instance, the theory is that this was the end of the Sabbath day. So an end of a long day of teaching for Jesus, but also the appropriate time for a weekly blessing of of the children. But the place that our culture differs massively from theirs is that in their culture, children had no utility 
and therefore they were seen as unimportant. Uh, they, they were pushed to the corner, so to speak, physically and metaphorically, where they couldn't disrupt uh, the, sort of the neat and tidy adult universe. Uh, their job was to stay quiet, stay out of the way, and grow until they were big enough to be useful. And, and so, in, in fact, in Western culture, it wasn't even that long ago when, when children were sometimes told to, to be seen and not heard. Have you heard that? So we're not even that far removed from the, that era in, in Western culture. Um, but in this ancient culture, I think it was even more deeply ingrained. And, and so you have to imagine that the, the crowds are pushing in and everybody wants a shot at Jesus. He, he's celebrity status. The eyes of the nation are on him. And then you've got these little children. And I can only imagine that the disciples are trying to prioritize as they hold back the crowds who are pressing in on Jesus, saying, oh, synagogue leader, okay, you can come through, come through. Oh, local politician, uh, you have two minutes, two minutes, you've got two minutes, like, come through. And they're holding back the crowds, and, and you know there's a lady there who's saying, if I could only touch the train of his robe, I'll be healed. And Thomas is pushing back, don't touch the robe. Like, like they're just battling, right? And so I, I just I imagine that in the midst of that, they, they see these, these little children and, and just laugh. Like, oh, really? Please. Like, somebody round up these children and take them home. This is not worth his time. He's got bigger and better things to do. And so we're told that the disciples rebuked them and essentially told them to leave. But Jesus stopped everything right then and there stop the march, forget about the crowds, wait. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And he blesses them. Turn with me, if you would, one page over in your Bibles to Matthew 20, verse 29, because there's something else that I want us to see. It turns out that the experience that the disciples are having uh, is not a one-off, but rather it's a bit of a reoccurring theme in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew 20, verse 29, we're told this. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him as was often the case. So the crowds are pressing in again, and this time it says two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Now, the phrase son of David was a loaded phrase in their culture. It, it meant royalty. It, it meant Jesus, we believe that you are the descendant of King David who will rule on the throne. That you are royalty, that, that you have come to be king. Have mercy on us. Be kind to us. Now, what type of kindness were they asking for? I'm probably guessing money. But the text doesn't say. In any case, we're told this, verse 31, it says that the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. 
I, I mean, how annoying is this? Here is the most important person who has ever lived on his way to do something infinitely worthy of his time, and you're going to ask him for money? Like, are you serious? Shut it. Go away. He's got better things to do. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them. So so try to imagine that if you can. Same scene, the crowds pressing in, the procession, and there's joy and momentum and people shouting and cheering and struggling just to touch Jesus as the disciples act like his personal police force. And, and, and he's coming through, the whole city is stirred up. Anytime he came through a town, it was stirred up. Everybody's out there. And right in the midst of it, Jesus stops on, on the side of the road and he calls to them. Hey, you two, back there, blind guys, come down here. And, and I can only imagine that, that a hush fell over the audience. Just this eerie silence. What, what's he doing? What, what is this? What, what is he up to? And Jesus calls them into the center, and he asks them in, in front of everyone, what do you want me to do for you? And I can only imagine that they had to stand there and think. But, well, I, just thought, I just thought he was going to send one of his minions to drop some coins in, in our bucket. What, what do we do now? Should we ask him for money? I don't know. You ask him for money. <laughs> Should we ask him for, for, for the impossible? what if we ask him for the impossible and it doesn't happen? That's worse than money. And, and I can only imagine their thoughts are racing and, and the crowd is standing in eerie silence. Lord, they answer, we, we want our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And immediately they received their sight and what? And followed him. Our son Moses um, is downstairs right now. He's two and a half. And uh, most nights we try to read to him uh, from the Children's Storybook Bible, uh, which is an amazing resource for kids, by the way. Um, if you have young kids and you don't have the Children's Storybook Bible, um, we'll actually have free copies here uh, next Sunday as part of our Christmas Eve celebration. I highly suggest you pick one up. They're amazing tools for expressing the heart of God and the gospel to young kids, um, for young kids. If you have teenagers, it's already too late. I'm sorry. Um, but if you have young kids, there's still a chance. Get the Children's Storybook Bible. And so we've been, we've been reading from the Children's Storybook Bible. We try to read something like every night. And so um, from the age of one and a half to two and a half, for the last year of his life, he has asked for the same story every single night. And we try and branch out and read other things and show him other stuff. And he always comes back to the same story. David and Goliath. 
And, and for him as a young boy, it's, it's awesome. There's like this big battle that mounts up and this evil giant and the little boy goes out there and the little boy wins and, and it's, it's good stuff. And so every single night for the last year, it's time for David and Goliath, right? And, and there are some nights that he wants to hear it three to four times in a row. So over the course of last year, he's heard it hundreds of times, and, and, and still loves it, still goes back to it over and over again, wants nothing else. And then all of a sudden, last week, out of the blue, he changes stories. And he asks for Zacchaeus. <laughs> Are you kidding? Like, I, we have never talked about this story before. We've never mentioned it. And to be honest, I actually forgot it was in the Bible. Okay, I don't even know where he heard it from. He must have been downstairs in one of the kids' classes and they taught him this story. So he comes home and, and he, says, he says, Dad, I want to you know, hear the story of Zacchaeus. And, and so it, it, all of a sudden he, he's on you know, the, the Zacchaeus train and that's all he wants to read. Every night, Daddy, can we read Zacchaeus? Over and over again. All right, all right, all right. We'll, we'll read the story. Okay, well, Zacchaeus, he was a wee little man. And, and I didn't go to Sunday school growing up, so I don't know the songs. So what we do in our house is I just make them up. True story, um, which will probably like leave them scarred later in life. But I, like, I'm just making up these songs, right? So, so I sing the song about the wee little man who, who nobody liked, and he climbs up a tree to see Jesus, and Jesus comes and invites him over to his house for dinner. And, and the story ends in, in the children's storybook Bible uh, with Jesus, with, with Zacchaeus up on a stool, so that he's tall enough to shake Jesus' hand, right? And, and so we get to the end of the story, and I, I act it out with Moses. I take his little hand, and I shake it, and I say, nice to meet you, Zacchaeus. And, and he eats it up. He's, he loves it. Okay, Daddy, again, again, again. Let's read the story again. And, and so I, was, uh, I mentioned it to Matt Karsh last week. I said, yeah, this is so weird. He just switched, and it's all he wants to read. And, and, and I, don't, I don't get it. And, and Karsh said, well, Maybe it's because he's a wee little man. And I thought, oh, oh, oh my gosh, that, that, that's it. Of course, like how, how did I miss this? That, that's, why he, that's why he wants to read the story. Why does my two-year-old son want to hear the story of Zacchaeus over and over again? Why? Because, because in his little two-year-old mind, he understands through the story of Zacchaeus that there is room in the kingdom for we little men. And that's powerful. If we had a, a church Twitter, I would tweet that. Because, because Moses, he gets that Jesus is the real deal. He's beginning to grasp it in his two and a half year old mind. He understands that Jesus is the center of the plot line, if not the center of the universe. He, he understands that there's something special about this guy. But Zacchaeus it is beautiful because he finds himself in the story. There, there's, there's room in the kingdom for we little men. And he's thinking, wow, maybe, maybe if Jesus came to town, he'd want to stand me up on a stool and he'd want to shake my hand. Dad, read it again. 
I want to hear it again. And, and it's powerful because it speaks to him about the radical inclusivity of our Jesus. That he welcomes in the unimportant person. That you've got no skill and no talent and no value in society and no clout and no financial resources and an imperfect record. And Jesus says, perfect. Come and follow after me. We'd love to have you. In fact, you're worth stopping the procession for. And I'm going to call you to the center right here and now while the crowd waits. And I'm going to speak to you and I'm going to bless you in this place. Hi. Those Those people can wait. You are worthy of that because he has deemed you worthy of that. Last week, I was setting the signs out front of the church um, early Sunday morning, and there was a girl out there, mid-20s, kind of semi-homeless state. I didn't get the full story, but she was out front of the church hours before the gathering started picking up trash, and she was mumbling to herself along the way about how people need to respect the church and respect God and don't throw trash on, on the ground. Come on, people, and I think I scared her half to death. Because she didn't see me, and all of a sudden I was like, hey, thanks for picking up trash. And, she, and, and then we got to talking, and I said, hey, the, the gathering starts at 10. Um, we, we'd love to have you. And, and of course, she came up with some excuse as to why she couldn't do that. And then she said, besides, God doesn't want to talk to me right now. And she turned, and, and she walked away. And, and it, it just about broke my heart. He, he doesn't want to talk to you right now? It, really? Like that's why you won't come and, and gather with us because you don't think he has the time for you? No, the world doesn't have the time for you. Your family might not have the time for you. Your so-called friends might not have the time for you. But Jesus does. And, and he would stop the procession just, just for you, just to sit there with the person that the world has deemed unworthy. But why? Why, why? why did she think that? It's because the world has taught her that she is unimportant. It, it, the, the world, and she projected that perception directly onto God. The world doesn't have time for me. They don't care who I am or how I'm doing. They don't care whether I have a home or not. They don't care what I have to say. Why would God? When you read these stories of who Jesus actually was, of who God actually is, you can't help but walk away with the sense that God actually cares. That, that maybe he just wants to sit with you in, in the midst of the busyness of the season that you're in. When you don't care about, enough about yourself to stop your own procession. And, and Jesus says, I, I, I care. 
And, and he wants to find you in that season and call you right into the midst of what he's doing and, and bless you in that place. He is constantly demonstrating the compassion that, that manifests itself in, in this radical and unexpected inclusivity. He's, he's just inviting you in. And you didn't have to do anything to, to earn it. it. It wasn't your moral record. It wasn't, it wasn't the quality of your heart. It was the quality of his. It was through Jesus, we're told, that we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And, and this grace that you're standing on, it, it's holy ground. And, and if you try and go back and, and, and you try and justify your acceptance and, and try and justify your invitation based on who you are or, or, or how well you've responded or, or how little you sin, you, you actually tarnish the very grace that welcomed you in. You, you, you put on your fancy dress shoes and you walk all over that grace. But, but if you're willing to, to take off your shoes and, and, and approach him with wonder and awe and, and simply accept with gratitude what he's done, everything changes. E everything begins to change. We want so badly to prove to ourselves and to prove to God uh, that we're worthy of what we received. That, that somehow we're worthy, we're secure in the blessing of God because of who we are and because we're worthy of it. Which means inevitably in our minds there will be a whole bunch of other people who are not. And the moment we do this, the moment we turn from awe of God and, and His radical invitation and, and grace and, and, we, and we turn to self-justification and self-righteousness. We turn inward. The moment you do that, it, 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 the, the kingdom starts to slip through your fingertips. There, there it goes. It, it, it's, it's elusive in that, in, in that sense. What does Jesus say? He says, truly I tell you, any, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Think about that. How do these small, unimportant children at the back of the line, at the margins of society, in their youth, how did they receive the kingdom? Wonder. Awe. Childlike faith. God, God can do anything. He's amazing. God, you'll have me. I can follow you. Of course. Of course I'll follow you if you'll have me. They possess the, the, the very sense of wonder and amazement that has been driven from the perceived reality of the adult world. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't miss it. Don't, don't be deaf to, to the majesty. Don't be numb to the gift. It is grace that welcomed you in. The same grace that welcomed in the sinners and the tax collectors this week. The, the same grace that, that's welcoming in the useless children and the blind beggars this morning. It's grace. And if we don't understand that we've been fully and, and, fu and finally justified by Jesus, 
that you walk in his undiminished and undiminishing righteousness, then we will end up guarding the very thing we should be giving away. God's grace is not a limited resource. The kingdom of heaven is not exhaustible. Nobody justifies their way through the front door. Nobody does. You don't have to guard it. In fact, the more people that are welcomed into the kingdom, the bigger the kingdom gets. It it actually expands in depth and beauty as more people enter it. Bob Goff says it this way. He says, too often we end up being bouncers at the door when we should be the ushers showing people to their seats. And every once in a while, we, myself included, we throw out awe and wonder. We throw out childlike trust in in radical grace and we end up right there alongside the disciples, pushing back the crowd and rebuking people along the way. And when you do that, I want you to hear that, that still small voice in the back of your head whispering to you, don't hinder them. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. But if we enter the kingdom by the door of grace and and wonder and awe and radical inclusivity, then as a redeemed community, we will operate and exhibit those exact same qualities. If that's the way you enter the kingdom, if you know that's the basis for life with God, it will define our community. If we know how we got in, if we're aware of the grace on which we now stand, then we will be the type of community that is infinitely worth inviting other people into. And now the whole thing comes full circle. Because all of those worthless people that Jesus is stopping the procession for, they actually become part of the community. It says that the blind men received their sight and what? Followed him. Okay, okay, you're in now. You, you are a part of this community. And this community will be unlike any other on planet Earth. Because it's characterized but by such radical grace that it creates a level playing field where no person is above another. Here, here are just some of the things that the scriptures say about the community that is built on this type of grace. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast or elevate themselves above another. His purpose in doing it this way was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, period. That's who you are. All of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ and his righteousness. As a result, there is now this new radical level playing field. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. What on earth? That's my identity. What do you mean there's no longer Jew or Gentile? 
How is that even possible? That's who I am. There is no longer slave or free. What? Nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You have to realize how disorienting this was for the original audience, if not for us. What's God saying? He's saying, hey, you might be a wealthy Hebrew Jewish male with every advantage in the world, but that's not who you are anymore. If you are to participate in this community, that will not define you. It isn't about your rights and privileges and righteousness and exercising those over other people, using what the benefits that have been afforded to you. You have to lay that stuff down. Because if you don't, you will be a self-righteous bouncer instead of a joy-filled usher. You gotta lay that stuff down. In fact, just so you really get it, Jesus says, I'm gonna wash your feet. What? What? Jesus, are are you mad? That that that's you can't do that. That's what slaves do. You, you, it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. I'm not comfortable with that. I, I cannot allow you to, to, to do it. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered with the strongest words that he could use in this situation. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, what I am acting out for you symbolically in this moment is so important that if you miss it, you miss everything. You can't be a part of what I'm doing if you don't get this. You, you, you can't build the kingdom of God on earth without this as the foundation. I stop the procession for people that you think are worthless. And, and I stoop down to wash the junk off of your feet. Why? Because the greatest among you will, what? Rule with an iron fist, glory in their own popularity, and in their own power, make insane amounts of money to the detriment of everyone else. No, that's what the world does. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you sh should be like the youngest, l like a child in importance, and the one who rules like the one who serves. All those communities out there are characterized by self-interest and self-promotion and self-absorption. They're characterized by hierarchy. They're the type of communities that shut out the children and the beggars and the worthless person not here. That's not how the kingdom works. It belongs to those people. This is a new humanity born out of a patchwork of people who have been radically redeemed. 
And it is on grace that we now stand. And you know why grace is so hard for us? It's because it's the end of pride. It's the end of self-righteousness. It's the end of self-sufficiency. It's the end of ego. It's the end of everything we've glorified in America. That's why it's so hard for us. Because we don't want to be like little children. And yet at the same time, that grace is the very foundation for a whole new type of freedom. As Jesus finishes washing his disciples' feet, he poses a brilliant question to them. He he says, do you understand what I've done for you? Do, do, Do you get it? Do you understand what this simple act is going to mean for the countless gospel communities that are about to be born? Do you understand what this means, the way this will shape the world that is yet to come? Do you get it? And I can't help but think that that Jesus, for some of you, Jesus is standing next to the cross this morning. And and he's asking this question. Do you you understand? Do you understand what I've done for you? Do, do you? Do you get it? Because if you do, if you if you really get it, if you really do, everything else changes. It, it, when we truly understand that it is out of radical grace and inclusivity and not our own self-work, that, that then we will naturally become the type of people who stop the procession for those the world has deemed worthless. We will naturally become those people if we understand the basis of our own relationship before God. Why? Because we won't see labels anymore. We, we won't see hierarchy anymore. We, we begin to see beyond labels and boundaries and, and name tags and uniforms and titles and the letters that we place after our names. And, and we see image bearers who are worthy of the kingdom of God. Victory is when we are so cognizant of the grace of God in our own lives that we begin to see every other human being as worthy of that same grace. If we get that, if we, if we truly believe that, everything changes. We, we, we won't even think twice about stopping the procession. And in a society that is still struggling under the weight of sexism, that is still wading through the muck and mire uh, of lingering racism, that that is hell-bent on hierarchy, that rushes to cliques and classes, that's still shutting out the worthless person. I can't help but wonder if the solution is right here. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Let's pray.